Hello and welcome to another episode of the SCU Buzz podcast. Firstly, Southern Cross University acknowledges and pays respects to their ancestors, elders and descendants on the lands upon which we meet and study. We are mindful that within and without the buildings, these lands always were and always will be Aboriginal land. And we are joined today with Dr. Kathomi Gatwiri. She is an award-winning researcher and senior lecturer teaching social work and social policy at Southern Cross University. She's had some epic research achievements. In 2017, she was named Young Kenyan of the Year and in 2019 was awarded the Early Career Research Award for her excellence in research on childbirth trauma amongst African women. She has a Bachelor of Social Work, Master of Counselling and Psychotherapy and a PhD in Social Work and Cultural Studies. And I'm so honoured to be able to talk to you today. Hello, Kathomi. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Hello, Yasmin. Thank you for having me. Now, your research is obviously very intense, and I think this question could be pretty helpful for those looking to start studying social work or already in the field. I want to know how you manage to mentally separate work from home life. Like, Do you have any strategies or tools someone could implement to kind of disassociate once you get home from such heavy content that you research? Mm, that's a really good question and actually a good place to start because yes the research is intense and the work that we do um, is quite intense because as social workers often we are on the front line of people's pain and people's traumas and people's suffering you know a lot of people don't come to see social workers because they're having a great time in their life and so as social workers we are really at the front line of holding a lot of people's suffering and pain and when they're in a state of a lot of brokenness so Mm -hmm. that sometimes can transfer from our work into our personal lives. So with my research particularly, which also research is not just trauma, but also, you know, childhood trauma, but also racial trauma. Mm. Yes, it is intense, but it is very rewarding. The reward personally for me is helping and supporting Black communities and communities of colour to have their experiences centred Um, in academic discourses and I like you know seeing as many experiences being reflected in the diversity of academic work but yes there's a toll when you're a researcher who is in a way also being researched and when your story is contained within the data that you collect from your participants Mm. And these are stories of pain and struggle but also there are a lot of stories of joy and resilience And it's also, there's a toll also when you're teaching about your own experiences in a way. And I I think a lot of our students would also connect with the fact that when we are teaching stuff in social work, they will recognize themselves in a lot of stuff that we talk about. So for me, some of the tools that I use are 
I am very intentional with my story. I don't like to share that which is not necessary, that which can be held by, by people who have not earned the right to hear that story. So for, by containing the boundaries of my personal life, mm. I'm able to have a place and to go to a place where no one else has entered, to go and relax and to go and have some peace. And I think that's really important, particularly as teachers who are also very interested in using lived experiences to teach you know that sometimes we need to have that place where we can go that nobody else has gone in terms of our stories another tool that I use and I use the word intentional a lot is I'm very intentional with time yes mean I say no a lot (laughs) (laughs) really and I really encourage people to say no a lot especially women especially who tend to just overcommit and overdo and say yes, 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 yes to a lot of things. And then by the time that we, we, we get to the crunch of it, we are so overextended and so overworked, you know. So say mm. no, say no with your chest. Mm. You know, with time, your no's become just as important as your yeses. So, for example, I don't take on projects that I don't feel are rewarding or have integrity. And I don't spend time with people I don't like or respect for the purposes of quote-unquote keeping up with the Joneses. I'm okay with being yeah. alone now, with being an oddity, as it allows me to, more time to actually do things that I like, spend time with people that I like and respect. And I don't know about you, Yasmin, but a lot of people don't seem to realise how much headspace you regain just by being in alignment with the energy that feeds you and builds you and honors you rather than just spending your energy just trying to fit in. Yeah, I'm definitely guilty of saying yes a lot, like when in reality I don't really want to. And I think that is something (laughs) I'm personally working on and I already can tell the difference. Like it is a case of quality over quantity, isn't it? A hundred percent. And I remember in one of my classes earlier this year, I talked about this concept to my students and I said, please learn to say no, Mm. because as social workers, you will be spread so thin, you know, learn to say no compassionately, because when you are not tired and over extended, you will be a good social worker, you will be a better social worker for it. And it was interesting because at the end of that class, you know, when I asked my students, so what did you learn this semester? What are your key reflections from everything that we've covered this? What what are you taking away? (laughs) Most of them said, oh, that discussion on saying no, I now do it at home. I do it with (laughs) my partner. I do it at work. And it's really helped me to change my life. And I think a lot of us are really afraid of saying no, because we are afraid that if we say no, we won't be as likable. We won't be as cool. We will you know people will think that we are just killjoys but I think we become better people by having more contained work and learning to just do the work that is containable and that we are really passionate about I just imagine all the students after taking your class like their partner's like oh can you hang up the washing and they're like no no I am saying no for me (laughs) 
<laughs> but obviously it's a lot deeper than that and um, it is and it's also the art of saying no well you know it's not just about uh, going and destroying your relationships or your all those things but the art of learning to say no well in a way that still is authentic to you yeah and I think if someone else uh, doesn't take it the right way then that's obviously a reflection that okay well maybe those people aren't very good for me and that kind of helps eliminate the bad people in your life you know over that quality of quantity so yeah I think that's a really good point now when I was looking into your research um can I just say wow first and foremost you have some amazing articles and stories out there that are so valuable to everyone. But I learned a new term, racial microaggressions. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about what that means? So racial microaggressions, they're those brief subtle put-downs that communicate a pattern of negative attitudes towards racially minoritized groups. So this is what people call casual racism. You know, know, it's so benign and it's so hidden and it is so passive and it occurs within the parameters of what is considered appropriate. So microaggressions can be enacted through jokes, through humor, through subtle acts of exclusion. And because they are so subtle, a lot of people are left to deal with this sense of, oh, that interaction didn't feel right. You know, mm. but the reason why they're hard sometimes to pin down is because there is no quote unquote evidence to support those experiences. You're just left with a feeling, an experience of being put down, of being disrespected, of being humiliated. So, for example, in terms of gendered microaggressions, it might be assuming that the woman in the meeting is the one who's going to be the secretary and taking notes and making sure everybody has a cup of tea because of those gendered expectations. In terms of racial microaggressions, it might be assuming that your black colleague or colleagues of color are minority hires or diversity hires, or that they fit a certain racial assumption that you've created for them. So microaggressions can come in different ways. So they can be micro insults where you go, you homogenize people or go like, oh, you don't sound black or you don't Mm. sound like you could be this person because you've just homogenized all black people into this category or all communities of color. Or you don't look like you could be Aboriginal or things like that, you know. Whereas we actually don't say those things to other majority groups. It's often with these minoritized groups. Um, There could also be micro-invalidations where, you know, we are more likely to invalidate the experiences from racial minorities. So, for example, when they speak about the experiences of racism, we gaslight them by making them think that they are being too sensitive, that they should be grateful for being hired here, that they are difficult to work with because they can't, quote, unquote, take a joke, things like that. And we use all those parameters to kind of invalidate those experiences. 
There's yeah. also another layer of, of racial microaggression, Yasmin, and this is very, two actually, they're very common. It's micro suspicions where Black people, Indigenous people, people of colour are often treated with suspicions uh, mm. in schools, in workplaces, in public spaces, and they're assumed to be a certain thing before they are. And yeah. so, for example, in the workplace, they might be assumed that they're not experts. They might be assumed that they're not uh, the natural academic. Uh, all those things do impact on uh, the racial experiences of people who live through them. Um, and you can see, Yasmin, from these experiences, I'm not talking about big things. I'm talking about the everyday chipping yeah. experiences, a comment here, a joke here, a really weird experience there. Nothing really big and momentous, but the accumulation and the compounding of those experiences over time really do have a significant um, psychological impact on on people who live through them yeah absolutely and I think the when you say joking like I think that's a big mm. one that I've witnessed around me happen a lot in workplaces mm-hmm. and stuff and I think yeah we really need to just start speaking up about that when someone does make a joke being like hey I don't think that's really okay to say or you know because sometimes it is just ignorance and not being aware that what you're saying is actually offensive so I think if we can keep those conversations going like hey uh, just so you know that's actually pretty insensitive to say or things like that hopefully we can get to a place where those jokes don't happen and people realise, hey, that's actually not funny and things like that. But, yeah, sadly, we still have a long way to go, I think. with Yeah, and I think, yes, Yasmin, you're right. I think we all have a role to play in ending the cycle. Mm. One of my favourite questions that I like to ask people when they say something that I feel a bit challenged to respond to is, could you tell me what you mean by that? And mm. what, what you're doing in that moment is that you're shifting the responsibility of explaining racism or their bigoted comment, uh, homophobia or, you mm. know, sexism to the other person. Like it's not on you then to go and decode and sit with the discomfort. And it's simply not saying that's not okay. It is saying, oh, I don't, I don't get that. I don't yeah. understand that. Could you, could you explain and often what happens, Yasmin, is when people are forced to actually explain <laughs> those things, they go, mm. then they catch themselves. Yeah. They catch themselves having to think about the nature of what they've just said. But what it does is that it removes the responsibility from you as the observer to be the person who has to do the work of always correcting you know, Mm. because I think it's more impactful when people have to explain that stuff and then they catch themselves and then they correct. So I just... That's a really helpful tool. It's it's what I call willful ignorance. You just assume this stance of willful ignorance where you say, just explain the joke to me, I don't get it. And often a lot of people actually catch themselves in the middle of explaining themselves and go, oh, (laughs) yeah. Okay, you know, I see where we're going with this. So, um, so yeah. that's interesting. 
I mean, the other challenging aspect is I think in Australia as a culture, we are pretty easygoing. So mm. the idea of not being to quote unquote take a joke is seen as a crime, you know, not to be laid back, to be seen as a killjoy. You yeah. know, it's something that a lot of people are so afraid of because they don't want to be the only person at a party who is always saying, could you explain that? You know, you know, sometimes it just feels easier to go with the flow because it's it's a hard thing sometimes to stand up against, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about uh, your research involving trauma. Now, uh, this is just a personal observation from me, but it seems like trauma is becoming a bit more acceptable to talk about. People are interested in learning more about it. I've seen a lot of TikToks even, um, you know, explaining trauma and things like that. Would you agree that there seems to be more of an interest in trauma at the moment? Yes, and it's very exciting to see Mm. that we are becoming more trauma-informed as a society Um, because personally, and I'm happy to be challenged about this, I think what I see often in my, my, not just in my research, but also in my private practice as a therapist is underlying a lot of our hurt and a lot of our suffering and a lot of our low self-esteem, lack of confidence, a lot of the reasons why we hurt other people is our own internalized trauma responses. It's, it's, it's our own trauma. It's our own pain often projected. And I think underlying a lot of that stuff is trauma. Mm. And I think when that trauma is unprocessed, and not addressed, it becomes collective. That's why sometimes we talk about collective trauma and, and things like that. So it's it's very good to see that it's it's um it's getting recognition that it deserves, but at the same time, I'm very aware of how because of how it's ballooned into discourse at the moment, how everything just seems to be about trauma. You know, and I think there needs to be a boundary around really understanding what trauma-informed practice is and not just trying to casually explain everything through a trauma lens when there isn't a very clear understanding about how trauma works, how it operates, how it impacts people and things like that. So so it's, it's good to see that. It's good to see that, yes. Yeah. What do you think the biggest misconception about trauma is? I think the biggest misconception about trauma is that something big and huge has to happen to you Mm. for you to to have uh, for you to have a trauma imprint. Yeah. So we often think, oh, as a child, you need to have lost a parent or you know, what someone being, you know, experiencing violence or if you're from a refugee background, that would be very traumatic to have left your country in those circumstances or, you know, natural disasters. When we used to think about trauma, we used to think about this big things, isn't it? Car accidents, Mm. natural disasters, whatever. What we are actually learning more about trauma, it's not the bigness or the smallness of an event, it is a body's ability to cope with that experience. 
So trauma is not about big events per se. Yes, it is that. But more so, the trauma that I deal with mostly is actually in the small things, what we term as small things. It's your body's inability to cope with an experience. Yeah, I've been reading a book um, with Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. It's called What Happened to You. Have you um, read that at all? Yes, it's on my shelf. Yeah, I've I've really found that so helpful in just realising, you know, not only with myself but with other people, it is shifting that focus of um, thinking about someone, oh, what's wrong with them? Why are they like this? And more so asking what's happened to them or what's happened to you. And I think once you learn about trauma, a lot of things start making sense. And also I think what it does is to helps us to have an understanding about our own patterns of behaviour. Mm. Like why is it that we are highly activated when people speak like that to me? Why is it that we feel so highly, you know, on high alert when this happens, when my child does this or when my partner does this, why does it put me in such a state of shock or fear or hyper arousal or things like that? You know, and we start then to cultivate how our body has been storing those memories of the things that have happened to us over time and haven't been processed. So they're still there in the body kind of waiting to be looked into, understood, validated and affirmed and eventually processed. So it's a big conversation. I look specifically at... um, aspects of racial trauma which is not one that is talked a lot about you know what it means like to live in a society that is constantly humiliating people who look like you or killing people who look like you incarcerating people who look like you misrepresenting people like you like what how does the body store those memories and imprints even when it's not happening to you directly? So I'm very interested to, to look at that and, and the impact it has on people who live through that. Yeah, and you've even started your own counselling service, Healing Together Therapy, is that right? Yes, I have. So my practice mostly um, caters to uh, Black people and people of colour who've experienced some sort of racial trauma or are trying to make sense of it, trying to process it. So there's a lot of those stories that, that come into my awareness about how traumatic actually it is to live as a Black person in the world. But, you know, a, a lot of our experiences are very much about survival. Yeah, and education is obviously a powerful tool for creating change. And um, I guess the younger we can inform our children or students about racism, the earlier we can help, hopefully. Mm-hmm. What are some steps that we can take to appropriately talk to students and children about racism? I think the most obvious one is to stop denying that it exists because there is no way, you know, billions of Black people are lying about the same experience. 
you know, yeah. so we can acknowledge that there's a problem and, and that's a good place to start. But one of the things that I tell parents and, of course, my students is to avoid colorblind approaches, you know, uh, the idea of I don't see color, you know, we are all the same, I don't see color. And I'm like, literally the child can see, you yeah. know, the child is looking at this person and noticing a difference. Why would you confuse a child that way? So the, the idea, while it's used with good intentions, these colorblind approaches can actually be very damaging. It is not possible for children not to see color. In fact, we all do. It's yeah. one of the first things we notice about people. So effectively, when we keep saying we don't see color, what we are saying is that we are actually silencing conversations about racial difference, when racial differences actually impact people's experiences in such a significant day. Teach yeah. children actually to see color, but teach them also that even when you do, that should not dictate how you treat that person. Mm. Like a lot of black people want people to see their blackness, but they also want to be treated equally. They just, they don't want that part of them to be erased because, you know, they want that part of them to be a part that is good and yeah. They're proud of us. So they want it to be seen, not erased, but they don't want to be treated differently after the fact. So the idea is to really encourage children to look at difference, not to shy away from it, but actually to see it and to look at it. And it's the same thing that I teach my students who are in my you know, units on disability and community practice where we've had people with lived experience come into my class saying that, you know, when children approach them, if they're wheelchair users and children approach them with curiosity, often you will see the embarrassment of the parent, you know, and snatching their child away going, don't be rude, don't be rude, you know. Yeah. And Often what we hear from people with lived experience is the child is not being rude, the child is being curious. But when you yank them away from me like that, what you're actually inadvertently teaching that child is that people like me do not deserve to be looked at. We are an offence, you know. Asking about our experience is being rude. And so I think seeing that, Seeing people with all their difference and beauty is, is very, very welcome, but also teaching ourselves how then do we move beyond just the seeing and the looking at too. How can we make the experiences of all people in the world similar, equal, respectful, regardless of how they look like? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really insightful, I think, to implement that. Thank you for sharing that. That's yeah, great. teach people how, teach children how to see things. They're very curious. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So you've been at Southern Cross University for a while now, a senior lecturer in social work. Do you have a favourite part about Southern Cross so far that stands out or what do you love most about Southern Cross? Uh, I've made some incredible friendships here at um, Southern Coast University. I think one thing that I've learned about work is mm. all work can be difficult, 
But what yeah. makes it easy is the relationships that surround that work environment. Um, a job can be good or bad depending on the relationships that surround you um, within that workplace. And for me, I'll honestly say that I've, I've um, had some really good friendships, some really good mentorship, people who are genuinely invested in the work that I do, in my success as an academic and as a teacher. And I think that is really good. I think that's part, that's what I like about working in regional institutes is, you know, there's that sense of connection. Yeah, and I love true. teaching. I love my students. I, I think I enjoy that part just as much as I enjoy my research. Well, Kathomia, I want to finish on one question for you. If you could drill one message into everyone's brain in the world, it automatically just goes into the brain and it sticks and it doesn't get questioned. What would the message be? You're enough. You're enough as you are you're enough you know and when you start your life from a place of I'm enough then your work is really built not from desperation or the need to prove something it comes from a place of deep centeredness Mm. you know and I think work that comes from that place of wholeness is really experienced differently and it feels different and it is rewarding. But when you do work from a place of desperation, wanting approval, wanting these things, I think the world doesn't give us enough of that anyway. So Mm. we are always going to struggle to do more so that we can have more and be affirmed more and be all those things. That's you beautiful. Know, the other concept that I teach my students is the concept of Ubuntu, which is an African philosophy that I love and I try to embody in my in my life, in my teaching, in my research. Yeah, I know you asked for one, but there you go. I gave you two. Yay, two for the price of one. Thank you. <laughs> I know. Uh, I could I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately. We do have to wrap it up. So thank you so much for joining us on the SCU Buzz podcast. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. And um, yeah, thanks a lot. No worries. Thank you so much, Yasmin.